All right, so good evening. We're up to part two, and actually the final part of the Book of Kings in our series. Last week we dealt with Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. And we talked about the first 11 chapters in the Book of Kings, as well as the overview to the book. King Solomon, as we discussed, started off with a very unstable reign. There were a lot of threats to the throne, to his appointment, to all of those things. We spoke about that a little bit. But after that all got ironed out, he then becomes the prototype for the Messianic king really has everything good going for him, bar none. He's a perfect individual, the wisest of all men, judges everybody fairly. He builds the temple. God's presence occupies it. Solomon is a prophet. Israel is religious, united, and all the nations of the world are flooding to learn of Solomon's wisdom and to see the temple. Solomon's reign from chapters 3 through 10 is cast as the Messianic era. Everything is exactly the way that it is supposed to be. It is the utopian era as, as we know it. And all later proph- prophecies that we'll be running up to starting next, next week are modeled after this reign. It's really just about as good as it ever can be and may soon come back because we could show you something like that. The uh, chapter 11 is what breaks everything down. Chapter 11, Solomon's thousand wives, including many of whom are still pagan at the moment, bring him down. They obviously have their pagan ways on their agenda. And at some point, they wear him down. That's the way the narrative describes it, that after years and years of saying, you know, we really would like some shrines in Jerusalem to reflect our pagan background, Solomon gives in, and he capitulates, and before you know it, he seems to be worshipping idols himself. And that's the end. We go from messianic era to an idolatrous king, And that's it. Everything falls apart. And we discussed the backwards and forwards way of reading the narrative, how everything kind of starts off great, 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 great kablooey. But once you know the kablooey, then when you look back, we saw that there are steps along the way that the narrative is building up to this final letdown. Now, the rest of the book is a consequence of Solomon's reintroduction of idolatry. Once there's idolatry in the picture, it doesn't quite go away, with a couple of exceptions throughout the entire period. And this is a disaster. Tonight we're going to look at the rest of the Book of Kings. That's what you do when you have a two-part section, and we did some of it last time. We're going to do the rest of it tonight. But focused on what we talked about last time in terms of King Solomon's reign becoming the set the tone reign for the rest of the book, which is what it does. We start with source number one, which is still in Solomon's reign. After he turned to idolatry and built all of these shrines, the Lord said to Solomon, Because you are guilty of this, you have not kept my covenant and the laws which I enjoined upon you. I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it away from your son." However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give your son one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So what do we learn from this passage? Tons of very top-flight important things just happened in three sentences. And it's important to really milk the messages out of this. What is God telling Solomon? It's more than just, for example, since you've worshipped idols, you're going to be punished. That's there. There's a consequence to all of this. But it's, it's subtler than that. There's something else going on. Actually, several things are going on. What else do we learn about God's response to this idolatry? Yeah. He's so How so? Well, he starts out threatening big, and he sort of lessens the threat as he goes along. Very good. And why does he lessen the threat? Not because of mercy, or at least not because of mercy towards Solomon. Oh, because intergenerational reward helps. 
Right? God tells Solomon that because your father happened to be the great King David, so you're not, there's a, you will benefit from that, even though you're terrible and deserve to have lightning shooting out your toenails. Right? The fact is that David was your father, and therefore I'm going to postpone, not mitigate, but postpone this disastrous consequence. That's one very important thing that we learn here. What other very important things do we learn here? I'm focusing on this for a lot because this sets the whole tone, yes, Sue? But that Israel will continue. For the sake of David, there will be one tribe that carries on the mission. Yeah, here, I'm going to modify what you said. You're correct. What's very important, and that's what we'll only find this out in the next chapter, we don't know that yet, is that the northern kingdom that seceded from the Davidic line, it's important the names of the two kingdoms. The northern kingdom became known as Malchut Israel, were Israel. And indeed, they had 10 out of 12 tribes. They have a right to call themselves that. Whereas the, tr- the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom that retained the eternality of the Davidic throne, is called the kingdom of Judah. That was a way of saying, you guys are a provincial tribal kingdom. You're not the king of Israel. To be the king of Israel, you have to first of all rule over numerous tribes, but also it's a way of saying, we're the real deal. The northerners who seceded claimed legitimacy to the future of Israel. And they said, you, the tribe of Judah, you're all concerned about your own tribe, but you don't care about us. Right? The very names of the, of the kingdoms are suggestive. So what you're saying is a critically important also for what's going down the pike in our book. And what else do we see in this little tiny passage? So, so far we've had two major messages coming out of them, and these messages are going to ride with the rest of the book of Kings. So that's, uh, that's, uh, I'm trying to be as efficient as I can. So that's what I do when I prepare survey materials. Like, okay, you've got to find three verses that just get it all. This is doing a good job, yes, Sandra? Um, I'm struck by the fact that he tears away, tears away. He's, he's repeating that. And I'm, am I misremembering that, that that's what um, Samuel said to Saul? When he said that, um, yes, you're not meaning you're not misremembering. And so it was also, <laughs> it's a metaphor because when David tore his cloak, and so it's interesting that the David metaphor is coming back and it's actually saving him. It also strikes me that, however um, punishing God is, even with David at his worst, um, God held back. Okay, he was an you know Ben Mavid who he was supposed to be killed and died. No. Nope. And here he's supposed to be torn, 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 but I'll be okay with it. Right, and God's covenant is eternal, right? Bloody father. In other words, the father who wasn't worthy enough turns out to be the one who saves his life. Right. Well, so it's you're confusing. The, the last point, you're confusing books, and then we're going to get over to oh, David and then Elias. In the book of Samuel, we know about the Bathsheba episode. We spent a lot of time talking about it. The book of Kings acknowledges that it happened. But it holds David up as the model righteous king. And in fact, in chapter 15, it's not on your pages, but a couple chapters down from where we are now, a later king called Asa, he was as righteous as King David. And then the narrator, jump, narrator jumps, jumps in. Even though David had the whole Uriah episode, we acknowledge that, but all the same, God loved him because he was so righteous. That's the book of Kings way of reckoning with not diminishing the truth of what you're talking about, but you don't want to mix these two books. In the book of Kings, King David is set up as not only the founder of the dynasty and the eternal covenant with God, but also as the model righteous king. Okay, David, and then Elias. Well, he also has the merit, not just just his father, David, but the temple that he built, because it says Jerusalem, for the sake of Jerusalem. That's right. So, in other words, what God is saying here is almost, and I'll say it it in in a... I don't mean to be nonchalant about it. God is saying, I'm stuck. I wish I could strike you dead, but I can't because I have an eternal covenant with David and with Jerusalem. 
So I can't punish you the way that you really, really, really deserve, Elias. God's emphasizing, he's choosing Jerusalem is an interesting development. No matter what happens, Jerusalem is God's seat, despite the sport, and has some implications for the future. Hugely so. You're absolutely right. In other words, th- these three verses are doing a lot. And Elias is absolutely right. Just the, the sen- sense of setting out that Jerusalem is God's eternal capital, even though the kingdom of Israel will be called the kingdom of Israel. But Jerusalem is God's capital. And the temple is God's legitimate shrine. Everything that happens up north, disaster. One other thing is happening here. And I'm just going to call attention to that as well. And not only is there intergenerational reward or merit from King David, there's also going to be intergenerational punishment. Because after all, King Solomon's son is going to inherit the brunt of Solomon's sins. Right? Solomon committed idolatry. God will never let idolatry go. Somebody's got to pay. It would have been Solomon, which in a human court is the only way we could do it. We don't have intergenerational anything. We, human courts have to deal with the person in front of you. So if Solomon worshipped idols, he deserves the consequence, not his son. But God sometimes punishes over generations. He already says this in the Ten Commandments, and he says this multiple other times. This is one of the most important underlying premises of the book of Kings as well. That Rechavam, who's the son of Solomon, who's going to inherit the brunt, has a divine decree looming over him before he ever takes the throne. The decree is he's not going to reign over all 12 tribes. The kingdom is going to split in his lifetime. This is critically important for understanding what the book of Kings is trying to do. So just to summarize all these different things, we have intergenerational reward, merit with David. We have the eternality of the Davidic covenant and Jerusalem. We have the intergenerational punishment that's coming down the pike. In just three verses, God has said, here's the theology of the book of Kings. Get ready, because there's going to be a lot more of that as we, as we march on through. Okay? Now, I mentioned this briefly last week. I'll mention it again. Solomon doesn't even repent. You would think after hearing this stark decree, he would say, I've sinned to God, or do something like what King David did. King David was broken. When he gets this prophetic confrontation, he, that's it. He, tur- he breaks down, he realizes he has done a horrible thing, and he spends the rest of his life tormented, not only over the fact that there are horrible consequences to what he has done, but he's tormented over the sin itself and his relationship with God. There's a beautiful model of repentance in all of the disastrous narrative over there. Here there's none. Solomon turns to idolatry, God rebukes him, and Solomon walks away. The, the idols stay, the shrines stay, everything remains the same. It's very, very staggering. And that sets up Solomon's legacy. I mentioned it last time, which is, on the one hand, he is the temple builder and the messianic king prototype for most of his career. But by the end, he becomes the man who brought idolatry back to the kingdom. And he's sowing the seeds not only for the split of the monarchy, but ultimately to the destruction of the temple, which is the climax of our book. And that brings us to poor Rechavam. Rechavam, the son of Solomon, wasn't quite as wise as his father. What happens at the very beginning of chapter 12, before the passage that we have in our source sheets, is that the northern tribes have appointed Yeravam, or Jeroboam in English. Yeravam is going to be their ringleader from the tribe of Joseph, or more accurately from the tribe of Ephraim, which is a subset of Joseph. And they come to Rechavam at his coronation. Now usually at a coronation, what do you have? Long live the king, get the high priest and the prophet in there to anoint him. Everybody says, long live the king. They have parades, the bands play, big fanfare. Well, this time, at the coronation, Yeravam and his delegates come to Rechavam and say, look, we're willing to serve you 
if. Not much of a coronation. Your father, Shlomo, he did wonderful things, but he worked us really hard. Taxes were very high. And by the way, they really were. It's a totally legitimate point. There was a lot of money involved. There was a lot of physical labor. The building projects of Solomon were enormous. The temple took seven years to build. Solomon's palace took an additional 13 years to build. So for 20 years, many, many, many Israelites were drafted. So instead of being able to farm, they had miluim, like Israeli soldiers might now. But instead of military draft miluim, you actually had temple building or palace building miluim, where for a couple months out of the year, you would have to leave your family and your farm and go out there and schlep rocks. Or build, or if you were a craftsman, you would be able to do a craft. There were a lot of people involved. Thousands and thousands of people were involved in these building projects. So Yeravam and his ringleaders come to Rechavam at the coronation and say, look, we did it, we were faithful citizens of Shlomo, we're willing to be faithful citizens of you too, but you need to lighten up. We don't want to work as hard. We'll work, we'll pay, we'll be faithful, loyal, we'll come to the army, we'll pay our taxes, but they've got to be lower taxes, and you can't work us as hard. So Rechavan didn't know what to do. So he spoke to the old advisors from Solomon's reign. And the bias is always, correctly, that the elders are wiser. The the elders are wiser. So he goes to the elders, and the elders say, you know, do whatever they say. If you listen to them today, they will listen to you forever. In other words, they understood that this was a legitimate claim. They're not being lazy they really were burdened. It was a hard, you know, we think of the positive side of Solomon's reign. So many good things were achieved. But it was hard work. So the elders say, you know what? Probably these were the ones who gave Solomon the advice to tax the people so hard. Let's lighten up a little bit. Right? Let's lighten up a little bit. And then we'll serve you. They say that's a great idea. Rechavam didn't like that. So he goes to his buddies, who are his contemporaries. And they say... If you give an inch, they'll take everything. Forget about it. You've got to be tough. You've got to tell them, absolutely not. And in fact, I'm going to be harsher than my father. Rechavam liked that one. And so, three days later, they all reconvene. And here we are in source number two. The king answered the people harshly, ignoring the advice that the elders had given him. He spoke to them in accordance with the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father flogged you with whips, but I will flog you with scorpions. Or do you think my dad was tough? Oh, man, you, you don't realize what you're dealing with here. I'm Rechavam. I'm going to be even tougher on you. Now, here comes this great narrative moment where the narrator jumps in, that, nicely handled by JPS by putting it in parentheses. The king did not listen to the people, for the Lord had brought it, brought it about in order to fulfill the promise that the Lord had made through Achiah the Shilonite to Yeravam, son of Nevat, predicting that, in fact, the kingdom would split. Okay, we'll get back to verse 15, but let's just read 16. What happens is when the Israelites hear that they were rejected, when all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered the king, We have no portion in David, no share in Jesse's son. To your tents, O Israel. Now look to your own house, O David. So the Israelites returned to their home, and they seceded from the union. The northern kingdom of Israel was founded. Yeravam became the king of the northern tribes. And that was it. There was a rift. When Rechavam... How did Rechavam find out about the rebellion? You know, when he hears this grumbling, he's like, yeah, people grumble, no big deal. What happens is shortly thereafter, Rechavam sends his tax collector to collect taxes. Because that's what you do. You're the king, you collect taxes from all the tribes. 
And they stone the tax collector to death. So that's an open act of rebellion, not to mention it's murder. But as far as Rechavam is concerned, that is the, that, that's the open act of rebellion. And Rechavam assembles a huge army to invade the north. He wants his power. He's not going to give it up to, to Yeravam. He wants Yeravam dead, and he wants the north to come back and be faithful. And then a prophet shows up and saves the day and says, this is God's will, leave it be, and Rechavam backs down. So thank God there wasn't, there wasn't a civil war at that moment in time, although there certainly was a state of war between the north and the south, often through their history after that. Not always. Sometimes they had peace. But often, 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 there was a state of war, including right from the get-go. Let's go back to verse 15 over here. The king did not listen to the people, for the Lord had brought it about in order to fulfill the promise that the Lord had made through Achiah the Shilonite, Yeravam, son of Nevat. Okay, let me just ask the good old elementary theology question here. Well, whatever happened to free will anyway? I thought that Rechavam just made a foolish decision. He listened to the wrong advisors. Right? One set of advisors were giving reasonable advice. This was a legitimate request. Let's honor it, and that will help down the line. And the others were saying, ah, they're a bunch of lazy bums. Let's really crush them, which was foolish advice. It was very arrogant advice at that moment in time. Okay, but now, verse 15, the prophetic narrator jumps in and says, this is the divine plan, which we also know to be true. So how is the passage portraying Rechavam's power of choice? Did he really choose the wrong thing, or was God kind of pulling some strings over there to make sure things came together, Sherry? Well, I think from what you're saying, they're really off. Yes, he made his own choice, but you think God doesn't know in advance already what's going to happen? God didn't twist his arm to make the choice he did. And that's, by, by the way, the difference between uh, free will and hunts. Foreknowledge, free will? Foreknowledge? I, I, I never remember the opposite, but basically, yes. I mean, you can reconcile the two because, as I said, you know, God could be right behind you, but he's not turning your arm. You're making the choice. Good, good. And we're going to get back to your point in just a moment, Sandra. Um, are there echoes here of Pharaoh, um, because when they come with reasonable requests, um, and you almost want to say, do it, do it, do it, like the elder said, and then um, he hardens his heart, and he, he goes back on it and says, I'm not only not going to do this, but you're not going to have straw. He says, I'm not only not going to do this, <laughs> but I'm going to be worse. And so right. the whole question of free will versus determinism is an issue, but um, basically, uh, I guess we learn from, from, from the Torah, if, if if, if you can, if you can, if even Nineveh can repent, I mean, like king of idol worship. It's, a, it's pretty amazing. So if, if even if even Nineveh could, then even though this is predicted, if you still have the free choice to choose the right way. Absolutely. So let's combine what Sherry and Sandra were saying in terms of one of my all-time favorite terms. A professor in, at Hebrew University in the middle of the 20th century, his name was Yechezkel Koifman. We would say Kaufman, but we're just Americans. He was, he was Yechezkel Koifman. He was the head of the Bible department in the middle of the 20th century at Hebrew University. He coined a term. He just came up with the, the name for it. He wasn't inventing a new concept. The concept is biblical. It's what Sherry and Sandra are saying. He called it Sibatiyut Kfula, or in English, dual causality. Tanakh never ever was bothered by the problem of the philosophers of, isn't it a paradox? If God knows the future, do we really have free will? Rambam and all the great philosophers were tormented by this problem, and they couldn't solve it because it is a paradox. 
Right? It's like, is the answer to this question no? Right? So, okay. Well, if you say yes, then, well, no, it isn't. If you say no, well, then it is. And you know, so, the, so foreknowledge and free will is a slightly more weighty paradox than the one I just gave you. But it's not solvable to the human mind. But the Bible never cared about that question. Thank God. So that's why I'm able to sleep at night. Right? Because if, if, if I were a philosopher, I would be tormented by this problem. But a Bible man, this is great. The way it works is God has a plan. And people have free will. And sometimes the prophets give us a glimpse that people acting on their own free will match what God was planning all along. But the people who are acting on their own free will, A, are totally free, and B, for good and for bad, completely accountable for their actions. And that's the way Tanakh works. So in this case, the point would be, Rechavam did what he did because he was a fool. He made a really bad decision. Why did he make that really bad decision? Because he was a fool. Right? That's it. That's, that, that's the biblical answer to that question. And then the narrator jumps in and says, oh, but by the way, his folly matched God's plan that the kingdom has, has to fall apart. That was a divine decree. But God wasn't manipulating him at all. That's, the way, that's what dual causality is. That there's the divine track and the human track. And the Bible, through the prophets, gives us a sense, occasionally, not always, a glimpse of how people's actions fulfill a divine plan. Another good example, since Sandra mentioned Pharaoh, is when Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites. Well, God promised that to Abraham centuries ago. So Pharaoh is fulfilling a divine plan. But of course, Pharaoh doesn't know about the divine plan, nor is he interested in any divine plan, or for that matter, anything divine. Right? What he's interested in is enslaving the Israelites because he is an awful, rotten, horrible person. Which is why God holds him accountable for his freely willed evil. But by the way, God also knows is fulfilling God's own plan for, for the people of Israel. So that's dual causality. There are skillions of examples of that. So now, the first of the three great traumas just occurred in the book of Kings. The first great trauma is the splitting of the kingdom, which is a disaster. You know, we talk about Jewish unity and we know that it's a tough task. But there's always a difference between, people always make this distinction, but make a mistake, by the way. You know, it's a ha, 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 two Jews, three opinions. That's a good thing. In fact, I'm fine with one Jew having 60 opinions. I don't care. I think that's fantastic. Torah is infinite. We shouldn't expect that everybody would agree. Judaism is not pro-conformity. Right? It is pro-unity. That we should be united, not because we're all the same, because we're united under God in the Torah, and each one of us is going to express that slightly differently and understand it slightly differently. That, I think, is incredibly favorable. Here we have a rift. Rifts are no good. Right? When the kingdom splits, it's not just, oh, there are 12 tribes, and each one has its own character and personality and good things and bad things and whatever else is going on. That's fine. We don't need to have one tribe. That's not the ideal. 12 is excellent. But if the 12 tribes can't even talk to each other or are at a state of war... That's incredibly undesirable and traumatic. And that's what the book of Kings has driven at. Idolatry drove the kingdom in half. That's message number one that comes out. And it happened intergenerationally. It's important that Rehavam, at least as of this moment, we don't know him to be an idolater. Fool, yes, but I'd rather be a fool than an idolater. Right? Shlomo, his father was the wicked one who brought about the divine decree that landed on the kingdom. And that's what's important here. And we'll get back to this point time and again. And this brings us to Yerabam's very first act as king, which you think Rehavam makes foolish mistakes. So does Yerabam. Yerabam made a really 
that one. Yeravam realized the obvious problem. Right now there's a temple in Jerusalem. It goes back to Elias' point again. There's a temple in Jerusalem. This is God's throne. And of course, who lives right next door to God's throne? The king of Judah. <laughs> Rechavam lives right there. Okay, so what happens three times a year? Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. All the people of Israel are supposed to come to the temple to serve God. And when they come to the temple to serve God in Jerusalem, they will see King Rechavam. And they might get nostalgic. They might say, what have we done? We've split the kingdom in, in two. We're at war with each other, but we're one people. Now, the person who's going to be the biggest loser when that happens is the king of the north, the of the north your Avam. What happens in this sort of circumstance is you get assassinated. Right? And your Avam, he's evil, but he's not dumb. He realizes that this is the problem. And so he realizes, I have to do something big in order to make sure that this doesn't happen. I have to keep people away from Jerusalem. So he comes up with a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant scheme, and I hope you detect some degree of, of sarcasm here, because otherwise it's going to come down that you think I'm pro his move. Here you go. Source not, you'll, you'll realize pretty, he's, he's very deliberate with his move. Source 3. Yeravam said to himself, Now the kingdom may well return to the house of David if these people still go up to offer sacrifices at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. The heart of these people will turn back to their master, King Rechavam of Judah. They will kill me and go back to King Rechavam of Judah. So he just said what I told you outside. So the king took counsel. You know, somebody should fire these advisors, right? And made two golden calves. You thought one wasn't enough. Well, he makes two, right? He said to the people, You have been going up to Jerusalem long enough. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Not only does he make golden calves, but he even uses the exact same expression that the Israelites said when they made the golden calf in the desert. Yeah, but here it fits because there are two, L-O-F. A little, right. <laughs> but yeah. Ooh. So, uh, no, 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 don't blame me. <laughs> okay, so, so, so on that happy note, he makes two golden calves and uses the exact same expression as the people, the Israelites in the desert. You would think somebody would have learned a lesson. But what's crazy is the Israelites go for it. Like, it's bad enough, you know, it's like those bad horror movies that I've never watched, but I remember them from the far side, you know, like those great pictures of, you know, the guy who goes down to the basement, you know, after 27 people went down there and disappeared. So the guy goes down to the basement and you have, you know, somebody saying, don't go there! You know, it's what, so I picture that that's pretty much what's happening here. Everybody should realize, come on, of all things, this is not a good idea. And he set one up in Beit El and placed the other in Don. That proved to be a cause of guilt. No kidding, for the people went to worship the calf at Beit El and the one in Don. He also made cult places and appointed priests from the ranks of the people who were not of Levite descent. Next thing he did, he abolished the priesthood and said, from now on, everybody can serve in, in these shrines. He stationed at Beit El the priests of the shrine that he, shrines that he had appointed to sacrifice the calves that he had made. And Yeravam established a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month in imitation of the festival in Judah. He established one at Beit El and he ascended the altar there. Great. Way to just throw everything out the window right away. Five seconds into the... Let me just go for a little while. Let me just go for a little while. It is Mar Cheshvan. Yeah, yeah. It is. So, this sounds like the worst advice ever. Now, watch this. I'm just going to sell his point of view. And Radak and several other commentators asked, well, how come everybody fell for this? They're all monotheistic. They're all God-fearing people. They all just built the temple five minutes ago. 
It's one thing if the king, for political reasons, is doing something so foolish. And Yeravam isn't known as a righteous person. He goes down as one of the great villains of our whole history. But why did everybody just accept that? You would think somebody would say, wait a minute, we don't do that anymore. Our ancestors made a terrible mistake in the desert, paid the price, but we've learned our lesson. We, we like the one God model. So the, the issue is, I'm going I'm to sell this to you just for a moment, not because I believe in any of this, but because you have to understand what the appeal is. Your Avam ben Nevad, again, he's doing something truly awful that just collapsed the northern kingdom and really brought the people down. But actually, he's making a very Jewish series of arguments. You have to understand that these golden calves, like the one in the desert, probably were not originally idols. They're statues. They're illegal. Don't make golden calves, right? We all know that. But they were actually built to serve God, which is why Aaron was totally on board with this. Right? He made the, gold, the original golden calf because they wanted to serve God. And he said, this, this, we're going to serve God tomorrow. And they did. Everybody was fine with that. That's already the Kuzari's view, Rabbi Yehuda Levi, Ibn Ezra, Radak follows suit. Most of our commentators don't think that they worship the actual statue. It's still a terrible crime. You're not allowed to build graven images and serve God with them. That's, that's against the rules. But it's a different kind of idolatry from serving actually another deity, which is also horrible and even worse. Okay? So what's his argument? I learned this song when I was a little kid. I'm sure many of you might have learned it or at least heard it somewhere along the lines of, you know, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly everywhere, up, up, down, down, right, left, and all around, here, there, and everywhere, that's where it can be found, so on and so forth. See, day school tuition gets you somewhere. Um, well, Yeravan ben Nevad has a good argument to his people. He says, don't we all believe that God is everywhere? And everybody would say, well, Sure. So he's like, well, how could you only serve God in Jerusalem? That's offensive. God isn't in one place. God is everywhere. I'll show you how to serve the God of Israel. He built these two golden calves. Where's Beit El and Don? Beit El is the southern tip of his kingdom, and Don is the northern tip of his kingdom. He's saying God dwells between, these are like the Kruvim, these are like the cherubs on the ark. The temple in Jerusalem arrogantly says that God dwells between two metallic cherubs right there on the ark. No way, God dwells over all the land, doesn't he? So I'm going to put one calf in the southern tip of my kingdom and one calf in the northern tip, because God is everywhere. God is over our whole kingdom. That's how we're going to serve God. That's very appealing, no? Not only that, but why should people who happen to be biologically descended from Aaron serve in the shrines? Let's say they're wicked. We should have the most righteous people of any tribe serving in, the, in, our, in our shrines. It's a good argument, right? By the way, Korach used the same argument, right? Korach's argument was, we don't need this priesthood. Let's get any, everybody's holy. So Yeravam is simply re-invoking that argument. So you understand, what happened to Korach is not going to make Yeravam on the right side of the fence. Yeravam is doing a terrible thing. But his argument, like Korach's, is very appealing. And God gave us the Torah with all these holidays. Let's make another one, right? We'll add. We're not going to take anything away. I'm not saying don't keep... Shavuot, I'm just saying, by the way, let's add this new holiday. We're more religious. Your Avam is celebrating something which is from time immemorial a very deep trend, not only within Jews, but within humanity, but it affects us more in terms of how the Torah slants it, which is that there is a deep, spontaneous urge to serve God. There is. People have it, which is a good thing. But if it's not channeled properly, it's very dangerous. The golden calf was a very dangerous mischanneling of 
the spiritual urge. And Aaron's sons, by the way, also mischanneled the spiritual urge, right? Nadav and Avihu. There, at this moment of holiness, God's presence is entering the newly dedicated Mishkan. And they say, we want to serve God, and they come running on in there with their incense. It's a very religious gesture that they have done. But you can't do that, and they paid a very costly price. They died. Right? That's extreme, but it's an extreme circumstance. Oh, by the way, you know what? Yeravam ben Nevada, it's not in the passage we just read. You know what he named his two sons? One was Nadav, and one was Aviyah. How's that for a good kicker? So he's celebrating the golden calf. He's celebrating Korah. He's celebrating Nadav and Avihu, and he names his children after them. He's saying, the Torah and the Jerusalem establishment have it wrong. Which makes him on the wrong side of the fence, right? But his argument is, the Torah restricts us in the wrong ways. We serve God everywhere. Everybody should have access to God. We should be able to add and be spontaneous. We love Nadav and Avihu. What God did was wrong. He shouldn't have punished them. What Moshe did was wrong. What David did was wrong. Okay, so the biblical point of view is that makes Yeravam very, very evil. Because right? he's defying God, Moshe, David, the temple. It's a bad series of things to defy if you want to be on the right side of the religious fence. But it has appeal because he's speaking in the name of spontaneous religiousness, religiosity. And it worked. He won everybody over. The northern kingdom joined Yeravam. I think I mentioned last time that the northern kingdom has 19 kings from several dynasties, from nine dynasties, actually, because there's an awful lot of coups and, and all kinds of assassinations and replacements and wars. and well, It's very ugly up there. That every single king gets a little introductory narrative. The way it goes is so-and-so was X number of years old when he took the throne. Sometimes you learn his mother's name. He took the throne the X year of the southern king, and so on and so forth. There's a stereotypical formula that every single king has. And then, for northern kings, there's one of two formulas. Either he continued in the evil ways of Yeravam ben Nevat, meaning he retained these shrines, he did not abolish them, or he was worse than Yeravam ben Nevat because he actually worshipped other deities. So several kings worshipped other deities, so therefore they were worse than Yeravam ben Nevat. Out of the 19 kings, you have Yeravam, the founder of the kingdom. Then you have the next 17 kings, who are all either counted as equal to Yeravam in wickedness or worse than Yeravam in wickedness. The only king who is neither of those two is the 19th out of 19. His name was Hoshea ben Elah, the one who was exiled by the Assyrians, where it says, the text goes out of its way to say, he was bad, but not as bad as Yeravam. He wasn't good, but he, he, it doesn't tell you how he was better. It just tells you that he was bad, but not as bad. But I'll tell you why this matters so much. Look at source number four. In the twelfth year of King Ahaz of Judah, well, here you get to see the stereotypical formula in action. Hoshea, son of Elah, who was, this is already in the late 8th century BCE, centuries have passed, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria for nine years. He did what was displeasing to the Lord, though not as much as the kings of Israel who preceded him. So it means he was the best of the 19. Good for him. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Halach, at the river Chabor, at the river Gozan, in the towns of Media. This is what we call the Ten Lost Tribes. This is the exile of the northern kingdom. For Israel broke away from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam, son of Nevat, king. Yeravam caused Israel to stray from the Lord and to commit great sin. So Yeravam goes down in history as what's called the Chotei Umachti. He sinned, 
but he also caused many others to sin. And that leads him to this terrible infamy of being the founder of all the bad things that ever happened. And the northern kingdom became immediately delegitimized thanks to him. And now that it's being exiled over 200 years after he reigned, it doesn't matter. It's his fault. And that's how the book of Kings sees things. But it's important, and I'm going to get back to this point in just a little while, it's important. The author of the book of Kings needs Hoshea, the son of Elah, to be slightly better than everybody before him. I'm sure he was, by the way, but this detail is critical for what our author is trying to do. He could have easily just said he was as bad as everybody else. None of us would have known the difference, it would have, because that's what we're used to at this point in the book. But before we get to why this point is so significant, let's just survey to the end of the book. Right after, well, concurrent with Hoshea, the son of Elah, in the south, he had a very righteous king. His name was Chizkiah, or Hezekiah in English. Chizkiah was astoundingly righteous. In fact, to this point, probably the most righteous king of the south. And since nobody in the north is ever righteous, therefore the most righteous king anywhere. He's fantastic. He is so faithful, righteous, does everything just just so. He he does phenomenal things. He eliminates all the shrines all over the kingdom of Judah, which no king had the guts to do prior to him. The gutsiest thing he did, frankly, is you remember that brass serpent or the bronze serpent story in the Torah? where you know, Israelites are complaining about the man again. God sends serpents, they chomp them, and then Moshe has to make this, this, this staff, which the medical establishment likes very much, you know, the, the bronze serpent. So evidently they kept that because, hey, that's a great souvenir. I mean, it's a divinely ordained thing, artifact from Moshe himself. Well, what we find out in the Hezekiah narratives is that that thing was still around. But people by now leave Israelites in the biblical period a statue, something bad is bound to happen. In this case, they were bringing incense to it. They turned it into some kind of illegal form of worship. And so Hezekiah broke it. He said, that's it. If you guys are worshiping this thing, well, that's not what it's for. It's supposed to be sanctifying God's name and you're desecrating it. He actually broke and shattered this artifact from Moshe Rabbeinu. You gotta believe that the op-eds the next day and online, the blogosphere was out of control, trashing him. How dare he eliminate a God-given artifact to Moses himself. But the book of Kings praises him to the high heavens. What a courageous man. That Here he is eliminating all forms of foreign worship, even though that would make him very, very unpopular. He eliminated the shrines. That's amazing. People were serving God for centuries at these shrines. And Chizkiah said, the Torah outlaws it. I'm going to have to destroy them now. So he did. He sent in the army and they took their sledgehammers, smashed them to bits, And that was the end. Well, he didn't get high popularity rankings, but God loves him. So Chizkiah did some very, very good things. But one thing that, it's not really his fault, but uh, one thing that he did that was really disastrous is that he had a son whose name was Menashe. And Menashe adds up to be the most wicked king ever, north or south. He is so bad. How bad is he? I'll tell you how bad he was. Um, there's a bunch of different words that the book of Kings uses for wickedness or evil. It's like synonyms. Okay, well, Menashe gets more of those synonyms than all the other kings put together. There's a bunch of different terms that are used for idolatry throughout the book, because again, there's a bunch of forms of idol worship that are floating around. Menashe gets more words for idolatry in his section than all the other kings put together. So that's the book of Kings' way of saying, not only was he an idolater, but he was the worst idolater ever. Plus, he was a murderer on top of that. That gets thrown in. Probably he was murdering all the God-fearing people who protested this violently. 
And Menashe said, well, off with your heads. I'm the king and you're not. I'm going to kill you all. So the religious elite had to go underground. And Menashe turned the country into a nation of, this the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, into an idolatrous kingdom. Not only that, but he actually brought idolatry into the temple itself. Nobody ever dared do that before. If you wanted to worship idols like Solomon, you do it somewhere else. You understand the temple belongs to God. And if you have problems with you know, idolatry problems, you serve idols somewhere else. And Hashem said, nope, idols are coming into the temple. This is the ultimate sacrilege. And therefore, a decree is sealed against Jerusalem in source number five. Therefore, the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, because King Menashe of Judah has done these abhorrent things, he has outdone in wickedness all that the Amorites did. That's a synonym for Canaanites, right? Did before his time. And because he led Judah to sin with his fetishes, I will apply to Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the weights of the house of Ahav. I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a dish and turns it upside down. Great imagery. It cuts to the chase. God decrees here the destruction of the first temple and the exile of Jerusalem. It's Menashe's fault, hands down. But Menashe, here's a curious point, reigned for 55 years and presumably died of old age. He didn't suffer any consequence of this at all. He reigned longer than any other king in Israel's history, 55 years, eclipsing the previous record of Uziah, which was 52. And that's it. And he dies peacefully. There's no wars during his reign, as far as we know, at least not in the Book of Kings. But then he has a grandson, Oh, bless the grandson. The grandson's name is Yoshiahu, or Josiah in English. Yoshiahu goes down as the most righteous king in Israel's history. He is outstanding. Chizkiah was fabulous, but Yoshiahu is the, is the star of the show. He is so good. He starts off growing up in an idolatrous household. It's not his fault. His, his father, Amon, who was Menashe's son, was a disaster also. But shortly thereafter, Yoshiah, when he got old enough to be responsible, learned from the right people and became very God-fearing. And during the process of Yoshiahu, with his own religious personal awakening, as a very young man, source number six kicks in. Then the high priest Hilkiah said to the scribe Shaphan, I found a scroll of the teaching, in Hebrew Torah, in the house of the Lord. They found some very old Torah scroll. And this was a very exciting thing to find. And Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, who read it. The scribe Shaphan also told the king, the high priest Hilkiah has given me a scroll. And Shaphan read it to the king. And the king heard the words of the scroll of the teaching. He rent his clothes. When he heard the Torah, and he looked around and saw what he and the whole kingdom were doing, he tore his garments out of mourning. He was miserable. This is Yoshiah. This is Yoshiah. Yoshiah says, send a delegation to the prophetess Huldah, who was evidently a very important prophetess of that era, and so they send a delegation over to her to say, what does God say on this subject? Chuldah says, there's just nothing you could do. The decree is sealed. Jerusalem is going to fall. The temple is going to be destroyed. Yoshiahu, Josiah, because you're so righteous, you will not live to see that destruction. But the destruction will happen. The decree is sealed. God has sealed it because of Menashe. There's nothing anybody can do. Well, Yeshiyahu is not going to take that one sitting down. He says, I'm going to make this country so religious it won't even know what hit it. I'm going to eliminate all evils and I'm going to promote Torah and God-fearingness throughout the kingdom. And I'm going to use every bit of my might and energy to make it happen. When Yoshiahu hears the decree, he says, I'm not accepting any decree. I've got to do something about this. Good for him. And so he takes off in source number seven. 
The king, this is still Yoshiahu. The king went up to the house of the Lord, together with all the men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and prophets, all the people, young and old. And he read to them the entire text of the covenant scroll, which had been found in the house of the Lord. First thing he does, he reads them the Torah and reminds them what their obligations are. The king stood by the pillar and solemnized the covenant before the Lord, that they would follow the Lord and observe his commandments. They make a national covenant that they're going to keep the Torah. It's amazing. Just amazing his injunctions and his laws with all their heart and soul, that they would fulfill all the terms of this covenant as inscribed upon the scroll, and all the people entered into the covenant. And once that happens, well, now you have the whole people's support. Here we go. And the king tore down the altars made by the kings of Judah on the roof by the upper chamber of Ahaz, and the altars made by Menashe in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He removed them quickly from there and scattered their rubble in the Kidron Valley. So he got rid of his precursor, namely his grandfather Menashe, the worst idolater of them all. He got rid of all that idolatry. But wait, here's the narrator going out of his way again, because you have to go out of your way here. Verse 13, the king also defiled the shrines facing Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Destroyer, which King Solomon of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the detestable thing of the Ammonites. Okay, that's the second great idolater of the period, King Solomon. Well, he has to get rid of those idols, so he did. Wait, we have one other great idolater to get rid of, and that's Yeravam, the Jeroboam, the founding king of the north. So let's get rid of him. Verse 14, he shattered their pillars and cut down their sacred posts and covered their sites with human bones. When you cover their sites with human bones, he's desecrating them because his, his precursor, Chizkiah, who also was very righteous, who destroyed shrines, didn't desecrate them, which means what happened after Chizkiah died and Menashe took power? They just rebuilt them. They were perfectly usable. Yoshiao is defiling them to make sure that nobody will ever rebuild these sites because they have Tumat Mate. They have human corpse contamination. Even idolaters respect that. They're, they're not going to rebuild these shrines. As for the altar, verse 15, let me, let me just, just, forgive me, let me just go for a moment. As for the altar in Beit El and the shrine made by Yeravam, son of Nevad, who caused Israel to sin, that altar too and the shrine as well, he tore down, he burned down the shrine and beat it to dust and he burned the sacred post. It's amazing. The three great idolaters of the book of Kings. Solomon, who is responsible directly for the splitting of the kingdom. Yeravam, who is responsible directly for the exile of the northern kingdom. And Menashe, who is responsible directly for the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem. Those three great idolaters, all their stuff was still there. Josiah shows up and destroys them all. He says, I'm going to undo all the damage of this period. Centuries of damage. And he's pretty heroic about it. So what happens to a divine decree when you have this national reformation, the elimination of all that was bad? Everybody seems to be righteous. They adopt the covenant. Well, the summary statements on Josiah's reign, verse 25, still at the bottom of this paragraph, bottom of the page. There was no king like him before who turned back to the Lord with all his heart and soul and might, the fulfillment of the Shema. He's the only one who gets that description as well. In full accord with the teaching of Moshe, nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn away from his awesome wrath, which he had blazed up against Judah because of all the things Menashe did to vex him. Sorry, the decree is sealed, and I mean it. Right? It's an astonishing statement, saying Menashe's idolatry was so bad, it simply was an irreversible sin. God must destroy Jerusalem. Even with all this repentance... Poor Barbanel goes bananas here. You know, he, he, can't, he, he is not going to tolerate that. He says, absolutely not. My God would forgive the Jews if they were all repenting like this. 
So it must be that the repentance wasn't as good, meaning that the people's repentance wasn't as good. Rather, Josiah's repentance is phenomenal. He's excellent. So he says, but the people, not everybody necessarily repented as nicely, at least not by choice, as what the narrative is, being, is describing over here. Be that as it may, in terms of theology, the book of Kings is making a very clear point, which is the decree is sealed, and the rest of the book is just two more chapters. Series of banjo, wicked kings, one after the other, just marching to the decree, until finally, just two chapters later, in 25, the Babylonians break through the walls of Jerusalem, after besieging it for a while, they kill a lot of people, they exile a lot of people, they destroy the temple. And that is the climactic frame of the book. Okay, a couple of points, and I have to bring it all together. The destruction of the temple is 586 BC. Yeah. So that was the end of Josiah's reign? Oh, no. Josiah's reign is 640 to 609 BC. He, he had a reformation hoping to undo the decree, but it was, it was too late. So the book of Kings' point of view is the decree was sealed and nothing, even this spectacular reformation, nothing could undo that damage. Okay, so now let's take stock of, oh, um, and, and yes, yeah, so, sorry, Sandra, yeah? Just ask a question, where did, the, where did he get the bones from? Where did, because it doesn't I, say, I'm I, guessing they just dug some up. But, no, it, the reason I ask is, yeah. is because um, if, they, um, if, they, if the prior kings did away with the priests, and the priests couldn't, presumably couldn't have dealt with the human remains. So, I mean, the whole thing, it's bizarre. What, what did they do? They dug up old graves? Or they might have, or else they just killed the pagan priests and then used their bones. There's, certainly, there's a lot of killing in the, it's not even hate to say, the narrative says it. So you don't have to say anything on your own here. Right. So be that as it may, uh, the exiled Jews, meaning the ones who were not killed during this battle, ended up, according to the Book of Kings, going to two locations. One is Babylonia. They went to the Babylonian exile. The Babylonians are the ones who exiled them and dragged off many into slavery there. But the surviving pockets who had remained past the exile, on their own, went to Egypt. And in this way, not only is there a destruction of the temple, but basically it's undoing every, the whole God project from the beginning of the Torah. Because after all, Abraham came from Babylonia from that Mesopotamian side of the world. And the whole project was, he's going to leave Mesopotamia and start this fabulous mission over in Israel. But now his descendants have failed. And some of them go back, go back to Babylonia. And then other ones go back to Egypt, undoing the Exodus. God had a project for the nation. Take them out of Egypt, bring them to the promised land, let them build that ideal society. They failed, they betrayed the covenant. So they go back to Egypt. So it's no accident that, the, that there's this terrible undoing that happens with this climactic dark hole of the, of the destruction of the temple and the exile. Now, let's summarize, first of all, the purposes of the book of Kings, and then something even grander, and then we're going to do all of this in just nine minutes. Watch this. All right. First of all, the book of, book of Kings. Book of Kings started with Solomon. It started very unstable. There was competition for the throne. But then Solomon's wisdom and righteousness solidify everything, and bam, everybody's united, happy, harmonious, wealthy country, powerful country, peace, religiousness, all the good stuff. God's presence occupies the temple, which has been built, all of the good things. And then sin is what unravels everything. Right? Specifically the sin of idolatry. First, the falling apart of the, the unraveling of the united monarchy then the exile of the ten tribes, and finally the destruction of the south, the southern kingdom, as well as the temple. Once again, in terms of the forward and backward looking of the book, it turns out that all these things God says at the very beginning of the book. 
there's foreshadowing, and you only see that foreshadowing once, you know, the end of the book, and you realize that this will happen. At King Solomon's dedication of the temple, at the very beginning of the book, God comes to him in source number eight. As for you, God is speaking to Solomon here, if you walk before me as your father David walked before me, wholeheartedly and with uprightness, doing all that I have commanded you and keeping my laws and my rules, then I will establish your throne of kingship over Israel forever, as I promised your father David, saying, your line on the throne of Israel shall never end. But if you and your descendants turn away from me and do not keep the commandments and laws which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will sweep Israel off the land which I gave them at the dedication of the temple. God, this is foreshadowing the whole book. In other words, once you have this prophecy and then read the rest of it and you see, oh, this happened, you, you get it, right? I will reject the house which I have consecrated to my name, meaning that I will let the temple be destroyed. Right, and Israel shall become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. As for this house, once so exalted, everyone passing by it shall be appalled and shall hiss. And when they ask, why did the Lord do thus to the land and to this house? The answer is because Israel betrayed the covenant and turned to idolatry. So the book of Kings makes it very, very, very clear that righteousness brings the country together, brings people together, unifies, brings this utopian era, this harmony between God and Israel and for that matter, the world, and idolatry shatters that harmony in in terrible, terrible ways. That's point number one. Point number two is that the people at the time of the destruction of the first temple were not just traumatized by the worst thing that had happened to the people of Israel ever, right? But they also said, God is unfair. We're bad. We admit it. We're wicked. The prophets are yelling at us. They've been yelling at us for a while. We're wicked. We're not going to pretend to be righteous. We're not. But, but Menashe was worse. And the prophets would agree with us on this. Why didn't his generation suffer this terrible catastrophe? They were upset about that. And they even came up with a proverb, which says, our ancestors ate the grapes and we got the cavities. They were furious. They said, God is unfair. Why are we getting the cavities? Our ancestors ate those grapes and they didn't brush their teeth. They should get the cavities. And indeed, Jeremiah, who lived at the, prophesied at the time of the destruction, quotes them in source 9. In those days they shall no longer say, parents have eaten sour grapes and children's teeth are blunted. But everyone shall die for his own sins. Israel felt God had wronged them, that the destruction happened to the wrong generation. And there are several verses throughout the Bible. Here, the book of Ezekiel, which is also from the time of the destruction, book of Lamentations. The book of Kings is trying to answer that question. And the way that it answers it is by saying, this is how God always works. God always punishes intergenerationally, and a later generation suffers the sins of the parents. King Solomon was the idolater, but it was his son who had to endure the splitting of the kingdom. Jeroboam is the one who founded the golden calf thing in the north, but it was a later generation, and specifically the most righteous king. The text goes out of its way to say he was bad, but not as bad as all the other ones. Is trying to say that you don't have to be the worst to suffer the most. I don't know if that makes anybody feel good around here. But, but it was important to justify the destruction of the temple. And finally, you're right. Menashe was worse than we are. But that's, it's okay. It's not okay. It's terrible. But that's how God has always worked. The book of Kings wanted to show that there's a pattern. So that when the Israelites or the Jews complained at the time of the destruction, God has abandoned us. The prophets could say, no, God hasn't abandoned you. You've betrayed the covenant. This is how God works. But God always has his arms open. 
the whole point of all of this to justify the temple is not just to make God look better, but it's to remind the Jews that they can come back, that the covenant is eternal, because everybody, besides the prophets, thought once the temple is destroyed and the Jews are exiled from their land, the God-Israel relationship is over. They really thought that. And only Jeremiah in Israel and Ezekiel in Babylonia, the two prophets, they had to fight really, really, really hard to persuade enough Jews to say, that's not the case. The God-Israel relationship is eternal. We just have to shape up our act. But that's a message of great hope in the middle of this terrible despair. Uh, That brings us to the bigger, bigger picture. The Book of Kings is not just the Book of Kings, even though that would have already given it a lot of merits for, for what it is. It's also the ninth of the first nine books of the Bible. The first nine books of the Bible are a unit, starting with the Torah, from the creation of the world until the destruction of the temple and the undoing of Babylonia and Egypt. It's one storyline. Right? Okay, well, how does the world start? God creates the world with tohu vavohu. It starts with chaos and instability. God creates order, and that leads to the Garden of Eden. Sin is what leads to exile and destruction. That pattern is there from the very beginning of history. The book of Kings is simply modeled after that. Solomon's reign starts with instability. Righteousness brings it all together, and you get the Garden of Eden. Sin, idolatry, betrayal of God's covenant, that's what leads to exile and destruction. The whole nine books are, are, are radiating that same message. And that's part of the global picture of what it is. And who better to say it than the prophet Jeremiah? Jeremiah, again, the prophet of the destruction. He was the one who was there and saw the whole thing. Source 10 over here. I look at the earth. It is unformed and void. In Hebrew, tohuvavohu. It's the only place in Tanakh where that full expression is used other than the second verse in the whole Torah. Jeremiah understood very, very, very well that what he was witnessing was literally the undoing of creation. We're going back to that instability, the chaos and the void that God started with. God was able to build order, but the rest was up to us, and we failed. So the book of Kings is a very bleak book. I mean, it really all boils down to, here's how the three great disasters occurred. Idolatry, Israel betrayed the covenant, intergenerational punishment, and that's what led it all off. But with it comes what we started with. There's also an eternal covenant between God and Israel and an eternal covenant between God and the Davidic dynasty. The very last few verses are that King Yehoiachin, the second to last king, who had been dragged into Babylonian exile, was released from prison and now is a free man in Babylonia. There's that glimmer of, oh, the Davidic line lives on. I wonder what's going to happen next. And the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the two prophets governing this period, were working very round the clock to convince the people of Israel God's arms are open. The destruction happened. It's cataclysmic. But the God-Israel relationship is eternal. And the rest is all up to us. And that brings us to an amazing point in our survey, which is we've finished 10 sessions so far, and we've done Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. We've gone through the four narrative books of the prophets, taking us from right after Moshe's death all the way down to the destruction of the first temple. At this moment, we're in a period of bleak, like way bleak. Temples destroyed, Jews are in exile, either Babylonia or Egypt. Tohu we're back to chaos. From a human perspective, it really is over right now. What we need are some prophets to show up and teach us how to look beyond the human perspective. And our next whole segment is going to be how the prophets do that. We're now up to the real prophetic books. Isaiah is going to be coming up next time, and then Jeremiah himself. 
And then by the springtime, we'll have Ezekiel as well. And I look forward to doing all of that with you. And I, I did it all in nine minutes. So, so, so it, as always, it's wonderful to see you. I look forward to